Hello, and welcome to episode 72 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and back with me this week is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Carl is also the host of the 30 Love Tennis podcast, which has released a couple of new episodes lately, including one with a fantastic baseball and sports in general writer, Joe Posnanski. So I haven't listened to it yet, but it's number one in my queue. Uh, so maybe, maybe by our episode number 80, I will have gotten around to that, but I'm certainly looking forward to it. You, sh- you guys should all check it out. Um, Joe is always worth a listen. Um, we are in the middle of the crazy summer of tennis where there aren't a lot of big tournaments, but there, we make up for it with sheer quantity. We had five tournaments last week that we completely skipped over talking about when I had Jeff McFarland as my guest talking about the hall of fame. Five more this week. Um, I'm talking about the ones that just finished yesterday. Another five plus WTA 125K coming up with the week starting today. We've also got World Team Tennis going on. Um, I mean, just tons of tennis happening around the world. So hope you're enjoying that, even if most of the big names are are taking some time off. And I wanted to start by talking about World Team Tennis. Carl, I know you've you've been able to go to some World Team Tennis events over the years, both in New York and around the country. I've I've been going to World Team Tennis stuff since I don't know the late '90s, I think. And it, it's tough being in Europe as I am now. It doesn't really show up in the news. Um, most of the European players stay and play the ATP and WTA tournaments in Europe, whereas it's more American focused. The, the the World Team Tennis rosters, but. It seems that the ATP, at least, is moving toward a bit of an accommodation with exhibitions because the, the ATP is now is now officially embraced Labor Cup. So Labor Cup, which feels pretty exhibition-y, is, is an official ATP event. Labor Cup results count in ATP head-to-heads, whatever that means. Um, do you think, Carl, that the World Team Tennis would be better off if it were more formally embraced as part of the calendar, whether that's ATP, WTA, ITF... Um, I mean, is, is, is that a smart move for something that's kind of on the fringes of the tennis world, like world team tennis is? Yeah, absolutely. It would benefit from not having to work so hard to get top players. Each team has some set of players that it designates as its stars, uh, which can be someone as star-studded as Venus Williams or someone, longtime top tenor, John Isner. Marty Fish, you know, retired players come back and play. And as far as there's any draw in World Team Tennis would be someone like that. But if it's an active player who's in, who's actually near the top of the game and, and a really big draw, there's just so much competition for that player. So the team often gets that player just for one or two of its, I don't know, dozen matches. And yeah, I think that's that's a big blow. Uh, and there's also just the, the blow of like distraction from, from other events. And I think Lever Cup has as such an asset, this, this sense that it's like the only thing happening that week, World Team Tennis is more diffuse. It'd be harder to have that feeling, but maybe if it could sort of pack the, the playoffs, the final into, uh, a weekend where there wasn't much else going on and all the top players who had done world team tennis that summer were, were involved, it, it would probably get a lot more attention. Maybe that's not really what they're going for. Maybe it's more just local interest and turnout. But, you know, if they're not, if they're not reaching Jeff in Norway, then I don't really know how world they are. Yeah, that's always been a little bit iffy with their name. I think it was always aspirational. And I don't know whether they ever had Canadian franchises. I mean, that's usual. usually how American leagues pretend like they are getting away with calling themselves global. Uh, but they did, back in the 70s, I think into the, the early 80s, maybe even beyond, uh, they had both a longer season and much better rosters. I mean, I remember just glancing at some of the programs from back in the 70s and it was it was a who's who of of tennis back in those days it was it's just what you did in the summer and now what you do after Wimbledon is if you're a star you take a break if you're not a star you go try to rack up points at 500s and 250s so that doesn't leave a lot of players for world team tennis uh, and yeah, it does seem to be kind of a vicious circle where you might have a few stars, but the stars don't play that often. Uh, the rest of the names aren't really a draw. And for any sports, like, you have to go beyond the minor league baseball model. Like I think world team tennis is a lot like minor league baseball in that 
they work really hard to create a fun environment for families to have a a night out where you enjoy the tennis, but you also maybe have some good food and there's a party and there's a DJ, all that stuff. Um, but there's got to be a there's got to be a broadcast element too if it's going to be financially stable. And I, I know that I think ESPN Plus or something, some organization like that is broadcasting World Team Tennis. Have you ever watched World Team Tennis on TV or streaming? Yeah, Tennis Channel has shown it as well, and I, I've felt that it's filler it's often you know a replay in the middle of the day after the match and it's it's hard to keep track of where these teams stand and where the season stands and whether any of the players care anyway but point to point i think it's really entertaining yeah that's that's what i was getting at a little bit is i mean a lot of the stuff we watch and a lot of the stuff we talk about is also treated as filler by broadcast networks so that isn't necessarily a strike against it, except uh, except to its stability. If Tennis Channel isn't treating it as something worthwhile, but but yeah, I go back and forth about this. Like as you point out, the the players sometimes seem like they care, sometimes seem like they don't. The format is always evolving. That might be a a, a charitable way of putting it. They're, they are innovating some some different types of scoring systems, and. It's tough to know, like you say, how where it stands in the season. It's if you tune in in the middle, it might be tough to understand where you are just in the match itself. Uh, but do you think there's potential there as a broadcast product that people might sit down to watch for an hour or two, like they sit down to watch an ATP final? On the one hand, I do, in that there's a lot to like about it, and it it incorporates men and women equally and and doubles and singles equally and it's it's colorful visually the games are short the the sets or matches whatever you want to call them are short the whole thing is a very predictable amount of time there's nowhere near the same range you'd have for any given best of three on tour you get to see a lot of different players um on the other hand, I don't think it's been that successful broadcast-wise lately, so I don't know if that means that that's the test and it fails or that uh, broadcasters haven't given it a fair chance or that um, they haven't they, they have, but they haven't sort of shown it in its best light. But I, I guess if this were its first season, I would be much more gung-ho on the prospects, and since it's, I don't know, somewhere in the 40s, I'm, I'm less sure. Yeah, and it has had its share of ups and downs over the years, and I think it's I mean, basically every franchise has changed hands several times, or relocated, or folded entirely. Um, I mean, is it is it just that something we come back to a lot on the podcast that we we always talk about with Labor Cup? Is it just because fans want to t- tune in to watch certain players? Like if 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 Federer or or someone else of uh, of a top ten type stature, uh, maybe top ten is too broad already, but someone else with a, with real draw. Um, if they were playing, would that make it work? If you had, you know, the 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 Orange County crush with Roger Federer against the Newport Beach Breakers with Rafael Nadal, does that make it a, a must-watch TV product? Yes, I mean, look at the Lever Cup. I, and this, I don't have numbers on ratings. My educated guess is that even when we have this sense afterwards that it was a success, people were paying attention. I don't think people were paying attention to Sock Burdick because that was part of Labor Cup and that Labor Cup also had Federer and Nadal because those are separate singles matches. I think World Team Tennis would actually have a better chance in that sense because the matches are linked more organically all in one session. Um, so I think I think it is largely star-driven. I think for the fans in attendance at Lever Cup, the the excitement can carry all the way through. But from a broadcast point of view, it's people are are like, okay, so when when are um, Djokovic and Federer playing doubles together again? Yeah, that that's the tough thing with with using the fact that you have that star power and making an entire event successful, and that's why you end up with tournaments. In, all over the ATP and WTA schedules where you have a few good players show up and then you tune in to watch the first round on center court on Monday or Tuesday and you know there's the proverbial three men and a dog in the in the crowd. And the fact that Alexander, Alexander Zverev is playing at his home tournament in Munich doesn't mean that people are going to show up to watch you know a Russian and a Chilean battle it out in the first round on Tuesday. Um, 
So let's think about it from the perspective of ATP. I mean, ATP has decided that Labor Cup is this big thing, or ATP wants to be on the side of Roger Federer and co, or whatever it is. There's some clear reasons why any sports organization would want to affiliate themselves with something as popular as Labor Cup. But if you have World Team Tennis, which granted, like we say, has its ups and downs, but you also have lots of successes. I mean, it's attracting a lot of people to tennis. I mean, there's been this this dynasty of sorts in Washington, D.C. with, with their successful team and, and appealing to a lot of fans there. Is, is there any cost to ATP or WTA to bring them into the fold and maybe use some of their marketing power to broaden their appeal to more fans in more places and more weeks of the year? Well, it depends on the nature of the deal. Like if they're somehow supposed to have fewer events as a way to make it less appealing for players to skip world team tennis or, you know, if they're supposed to give financial support, like maybe it becomes a less attractive deal to the tours. I, I think the upside for the tours is somewhat limited by the the non-global nature of it. And we, we already covered that, but I think specifically it's just counter trend that it's all in the U.S. Like if it were all in a different country that were more part of the the current state of tennis instead of the state of tennis 20 and 30 and 40 years ago, maybe it would be more appealing. So, you know, I think one of the reasons a lot of stars don't participate is that it is in the U.S. and they'd rather be in Europe or maybe South America. So if this were, you know, in Germany or in France or in a few European countries that together amount to the population of the U.S., that might be a lot more appealing as a partner for ATP WTA. You wonder if, if there's potential going more extreme in that direction you're talking about, because you're right that the, the days of, of the tennis world being centered on the U.S. are very far behind us. Uh, I wanted to bring up later that we do have three American men under the age of, of 21 and under uh, in the top 50 for the first time since 2003. So, I mean, there's slight trends kicking back in the other direction. We've got some exciting young American women prospects as well, but it's never going to get back to how it was in the 70s or 80s. And maybe World Team Tennis is trying too hard to remain global. I mean, you have so many players who are are not American, but live in the U.S., um, have a lot of U.S. ties, but maybe don't appeal to American fans the way that, that homegrown, for lack of a better word, players do. Uh, what I'm thinking of as a, as a point of contrast is the club leagues in Europe that in, I know of them in the Netherlands and in Germany. I, Czech Republic definitely has them as well. And I mean, they're limited in scope, but they're, some of them at least are really just players from that country. And they can fill an arena. I mean, not a big arena <laughs> and maybe not that many times per year, but there is a lot of local interest in that stuff. And and you wonder, given how much tournaments promote local players, they, they give local players wild cards, uh, fans show up and cheer for the, the players just because they have the right flag next to their name. Do you think maybe there, there's more potential for something like World Team Tennis if it just went 100% American and said, you know, come out and watch the some American stars battle out with some other American stars, even if all the names we're talking about are people outside the top 50? Yeah, and I think there you might have potential for a partnership with the USTA more than with the tours and maybe with, you know, the pro circuit and a lot of challenger level players. And yeah, I'd, be, I'd really be interested to see how that plays because it's not like challengers in the U.S. are dominated by Americans and, and the equivalent tournaments uh, on the women's side. And I don't think they're enormously successful or popular, but maybe in the team format with the colorful courts, with a star or two here or there, and somewhat famous coaches, maybe that could be a successful formula. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to forget because tennis is pushing so hard to become global and often trying to be a little bit ahead of its time. Like, for instance, the WTA schedule is... Uh, is becoming so lopsided in, in favor of Chinese venues. And there's lots of reasons for that. I'm not saying it's bad, but it's really striking to look at the WTA calendar right now and see that immediately after the U.S. Open, it's it's in Asia, largely in China, through the end of the season. And there's just not the, not the basis of Chinese players to justify that yet. 
maybe the fans are there. I'm not sure. But despite the fact that the the the, the sport is global, the tours are are very global. Fans are very local in their focus. I mean, we talked about this a lot with the Davis Cup and now the Fed Cup changing. I mean, fans want to show up for these home and home ties. At least that's the that's the story. Uh, they want to cheer for the players from their home country. I mean, casual fans might not know more than five or ten names of active tennis players, but if they see the right flag next to a name, they'll be a hundred percent behind them. I mean, that's one of the fascinating things about U.S. Open qualifying is. If, if someone who who no one had ever heard of showed up from Colombia and played U.S. Open qualifying, there would be 50 people there shouting their lungs out at you know, 11 a.m. on a Tuesday. Uh, and they only get that because, because of the country of origin. Um, so it, it seems like there's more opportunities for tennis to exploit that, even though the tours have pretty much abandoned. I mean, are there, uh, am I overstating the case there, Carl? Are, are there ways in which ATP and WTA are are keeping a focus on the the local home fan aspect of things uh, while they're still trying to expand globally? They do still show the flags next to their names, as you mentioned, and they they do announce that when the player comes out. But otherwise, no. I mean, I, I guess you could say indirectly, the tours sustain that by continuing the practice of letting tournaments award wild cards. We've talked about that before on the show, how that ends up with players from the same country who would not have made it in or else they wouldn't need wild cards. So there's definitely a little bit of trying to get the the players from that country into the draw, at least in the early rounds for the big night sessions. But it's, it's probably not being used to the extent it could. Um, you know, the tours are in a funny bind there because these these events can be very ephemeral. So like really building around a certain national connection when that tournament could move to a different country in two years is maybe not worth the investment. Yeah, I guess that's a that's a chicken and egg thing, too, is what I wanted to bring up as well is that traditionally uh, tennis tournaments are like to fans, like a lot of fans associate tennis with their hometown tournament. I mean, there, there are people who will who will go to, say, the, the Cincinnati events every year and never in their life will they watch live tennis anywhere else. Uh, I mean, that, that isn't true of all fans. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people will, you know, be regulars in Cincinnati or Washington and then maybe once or twice make a trip to New York for the U.S. Open. But, I mean, we both spent a lot of time living in New York around casual tennis fans there. And to New Yorkers, tennis is the U.S. Open. I mean, they're aware of Wimbledon and maybe aware of a few other things, but it's the U.S. Open. And maybe if there were more focus on that aspect of the fan experience, we wouldn't have the problem of ephemeral tournaments. I mean, I I don't know. I mean, it is a chicken and egg problem because if if you're the organizers in in Latvia with the Yermala tournament that they just uh, inaugurated this past week, I don't know how you build that from zero. I mean, without just a ton of advertising or you know, crossing your fingers that Anastasia Savastova is going to be healthy and winning for the first five years of the event. I don't know. It's a tough problem, uh, but it's one that I'm, it, it seems like it's being, being given less attention than it deserves. Uh, now, you, you mentioned that uh, example with Savastova and it made me think about building a tournament anywhere around any particular player. I mean, that also is very risky, like either that they no longer play that tournament or, you know, they, they do, but they don't do well. Like, I mean, I think part of the, inve- the what the tours, tours are trying to build is if all these players are appealing, no matter where they're from, then these things can be much more stable because if that guy doesn't, isn't healthy enough to make the draw or chooses not to play it, we can put in someone else with a similar ranking who's just as good. Yeah, that's the theory. I think that uh, that's one of those things that it, it sounds really good and it would be nice if that's the way the world works, but it doesn't. And you can you can fight that all you want, but you know, more Latvians are going to turn out to watch tennis if Sevastov is playing than if someone else ranked around number 20 in the world is playing. Uh, but maybe there's counterexamples to that, and maybe all you need is an initial boost, because the, the Bucharest tournament is only... If the WTA Bucharest tournament is just a few years old, and the first year... Uh, 2015 or 2016, Simona Halep went and blasted her way through the field, and 
memorably she beat Sevastova love and love in the final so it's nice that Sevastova got her own her own home country tournament victory as well but uh, it's right after Wimbledon so someone like Simona is going to be competitive at Wimbledon she's not going to play a lot in internationals so I'm not sure she's gone back since that first year I'm not sure whether the Bucharest tournament is continuing to be a success without her but I mean that's a that's a case study for this sort of thing it's tough to replace someone of Simona's Halep stature anyway, and there are some other Romanian at least recognizable names, but but it is tough. Um, but I, yeah, I don't want to repeat myself too much, but it seems like a, I'd like to see more focus on this or more acknowledgement that that's what fans are really interested in. Maybe uh, we need more intermediate positions for players where they are sort of, they're not playing, but they're there, they're in the crowd, they maybe play an exhibition, they, I don't know, they're honorary line jet. Like, you can imagine things they do where they get to hang out in their home country without exerting themselves too much at a time of season they don't want to. Yeah, that's a really good idea. And I think the first year that Halep didn't play in Bucharest, she did show up. I know she's been around for Fed Cup ties when she couldn't play. I mean, and many other players do the same thing. They show up for Davis and Fed Cup ties when they're not playing. Uh, maybe they could have a bigger role, but, but yeah, I mean, lots, lots of American tournaments and not just American, but I'm familiar with the U S ones will have legends matches as exhibitions. So if you, if you show up to Delray beach on some nights, you'll get a, you'll get a Delray beach match, like the standard ATP fair, but you'll also get, you know, James Blake versus Todd Martin or something. And a lot more fans are going to be interested in Blake Martin than a couple of 22 year olds that they've ever heard of. Maybe, maybe showing up for Blake Martin will make them interested in the 22 year olds, but um, got to tell sell tickets somehow. So Jeff, I have a yeah. quick question. Yeah. Lever cup relationship to ATP. It counts for head to head. Is there any other way that it is now a tour event? I mean, there are no ranking points, right? Oh God, I hope not. No, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I think it's just a matter of, well, I, the one thing I read was that the Lever cup now has access to ATP marketing and officiating resources or something, which made me laugh because a the labor cup needs no help with marketing and b i think all you need to do to have access to atp officiating resources is call up muhammad layani and offer him a job but i think it just formalizes that it's the labor cup has a week on the schedule i think it probably has more to do with that than anything else got it and one of our brief mention because i really liked your point about fans know their hometown tournament i was watching an episode of Being Serena last night, and she mentions that after the family moved to Florida when she was nine, Miami was the tournament, and like that was the only one they went to, and that was the only place where they saw what professional tennis was like. So I think even for players, when they were kids and fans, they, they have that same experience and association. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it should, it's too strong a word, what I want to say is it should work like that. I mean, kids, kids who are playing baseball or football or soccer or whatever, you grow up with your favorite team and you want to go up, you want to play for your favorite team. And, you know, you, you can still be great playing for some other team, but I mean, you don't, you don't focus on someday being a great football player. You focus on, you know, winning a Super Bowl for the Dolphins or something. Um, but may, maybe that just doesn't really work in tennis. I'm not sure. But speaking of these small tournaments in the U.S. that, um, we should start talking about our actual results from the last, well, just this last week. I think we're going to punt on the five tournaments from from two weeks ago. But I want to start with uh, with the two, ATP 250 in Atlanta. We had a final of Alex Dimonor, who we haven't heard much about for quite some time, against Taylor Fritz, who we have heard a little more from. Uh, I mentioned in our earlier discussion that there, for the first time since 2003, there are three American men, 21 or younger, inside the top 50. It's Fritz, Tiafo, and Riley Opelka. Opelka also was a semifinalist in Atlanta this week. And Fritz has really been on the rise. Had a good season on clay. Um, had Did he win the tournament in Eastbourne? Maybe he was just in the final there. Uh, but No, he won the tournament. He beat Query in the final, I think. Right, right, right. So he, he he's he's been solid on on all three major surfaces, and you'd expect he will do well on indoor hard as well. So he's really having a breakthrough season, but it wasn't good enough yesterday. He lost to the Australian, and the the, the big the big trivia stat from from that final or the tournament as a whole is Demonor did not face a break point in the entire tournament. 
I think I saw that's only the third time in ATP history that that's happened, that a player won a tournament without facing a break point. I'm not sure what the other two were, but I know Federer has come very close a couple of times, often on grass. Um, I wonder, Carl, are, are you putting much stock in that? I mean, I, 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 he beat Opelka in the semifinal, Fritz in the final. These are not like world-beating returners, but is there still something that we can take away from that? Well, sure. We can take away that he had a really good serving tournament against a relatively weak field of returners in a tournament where the field was weak enough that he could get a seed high enough to only have to win four matches, which doesn't happen that often. And, you know, that we should also look at his previous results, which were all on grass and which were nowhere near as impressive from a breakpoint perspective. I mean, in each of his five matches on grass just before this tournament, he faced at least three break points and was broken in every match. So, you know, small sample sizes, recency bias and all that. That said, I was particularly blown away by a stat that uh, Ben Rothenberg posted that he only lost seven first serve points all tournament. And if you look at his percentages, one on first serve, it's like 91, 96, 96, 94 I mean, that is that is that would be a really good serving day for John Isner or Ivo Karlovic, uh, even if they were playing each other. So, yes, he had an incredibly good serving tournament. And this is not I forget how tall he is. He's like 5'11 or something. So not someone who typically would put up first serve percent numbers in the 80s, let alone in the 90s. Uh, really impressive stats, even against the field he was facing. Do you think that he was he put up those numbers because he was serving that well, or because his his tactics were that solid behind the serve that he he just put away everything that came back? Yeah, I mean he was incredibly efficient at the first ball, but a lot of serves weren't coming back. Uh, I mean, this was a performance against Tomic in the quarters where you know it was it was retirement and he he barely broke a sweat probably but he hit aces on 26% of serves which is probably his career high and then against fritz who's a credible returner and one of the reasons he's been he's he's probably right now the leader among the young americans overall is that he's made his return game enough of a threat so that um he can he can combine that with his strong serve game and and win sets without going into the lottery of a tiebreaker every time he you know he demonar won hit aces on 15 percent of his service points so some something was was working for him there maybe it was the atlanta courts or, or the hot weather but he i think he really was getting a lot of the value from a serve as opposed to just the rest of his very strong game so do you think he has a he has a really strong surface preference that we can expect to continue to see because he's never really been much of a threat on clay and based on his, at least his background, if not his game style, you you would expect him to take some time to learn how to play on clay. And as you point out, he was, he was getting broken on grass. So this, whatever he's doing to to get these serve numbers, it didn't work as well on grass. I mean, is, is demon or basically a hardcore specialist at this point? He he's had some decent grass results in the past, and when he really rose in the rankings a couple of years ago, is on the strength of, I think, one final and one title on grass challengers in, in England. I I don't think he's necessarily that much stronger on hard than grass. I think it's just hard to build much of a record on grass to be sure. If you look at his Elo and like his ranking by Elo on the different surfaces. He's strongest on hard, then grass, and then really weak on clay, where he only has two tour-level victories in his career. And, you know, he lives in Spain. I think he gets some some rep for, for training on clay, and, and that, that builds the rest of his game. And maybe he's following in Sir Andy Murray's footsteps and being in training on clay in Spain to get really good on hard courts. Well, you mentioned... You went mentioned Murray, and the other comparison with Demonor is always going to be Leighton Hewitt. And I, I never followed Hewitt that closely, but he was never much of a threat on clay courts, was he? No, I don't think so. I think he was quite average on clay. Like, you know, if he was number one in the world overall, maybe he was like the 25th or 30th biggest threat on clay at that time, that kind of thing. If we had Elo, 
at, at that time, we would have known better. But uh, yeah, he didn't have any particularly impressive results, I'm pretty sure. And I don't actually think Demonar plays that much like you would other than just being really fast. Do you think the analogy is, is a strong one? I'm not sure. I get, it would be interesting to dig into the numbers and, and see whether there's something you could pinpoint with the, with the mental strength aspects. I think that that's one of the things that, that, that draw people to that analogy, that he was, he was a battler in a way that you don't think of a lot of other players as. I don't know if that's fair or not, but Demonor not only has a vaguely similar game style, but also seems to be the same kind of battler who's making you work hard on every point. And, I mean, I don't know whether there's whether if we tried to quantify that we'd land with, on anything, uh, but at least there's something there. I'm not I'm not sure how strong it is. By the way, I was a little hard on on you and on Clay. He won two out of every three matches he played in his career at the French Open, and his losses were really impressive. Four times ousted by Nadal, once by Ferrer, once by Gaudio. Canas, Robredo, Ferrero. Maybe he just had bad draws. But, yeah, he could play on clay, but it, it definitely was his weakest surface. Since you mentioned Ferrer, I have to follow up on this from last week's episode talking about the Hall of Fame. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, where do you come down on David Ferrer? Is, is he a Hall of Famer? I... Oh. <laughs> uh... Sure. I mean, I, I don't. <laughs> I've never been able to muster much opinion on Hall of Fames just because they're so subjective. I mean, we've talked about like greatest of all time and how subjective that is, and therefore we don't really want to talk about it much on this show. And like, as to whether yeah, we don't want to talk about it that much, we just end up doing a segment on it at least every week. <laughs> I think, unless this one counts, I think we'll avoid it this time. But yeah, I just you know, like Hall of Fame is like deliberately titled and then described so vaguely that you can change the standards over time and you can change what your your goals are for deciding i like ferrer i think he had an incredible career and i mean an incredible in terms of like if you look at his overall numbers it's it's surprising given what what he brought to the court and so sure i'd vote him in but maybe that's why i don't have a vote and maybe it's a good thing that we have higher standards i i do think you know, slam titles are overrated as an assessment of overall career. But uh, Ferrer really didn't come particularly close to even getting one. So I can see why that's a pretty big barrier for some people. And I'm happy to defer to their opinion. Yeah, I mean, the slams are pretty important. I'll be I'll be curious to see. I mean, I've said this before on the podcast, including last week, is that there's going to be this, there's going to be a glut when uh, the current wave of big stars retires. But then there'll be a period of the, the, the lost generation when, at least on the men's side, there's nobody to vote in, in unless you're looking at maybe Marin Cilic or um, maybe Del Potro. Like, there's, there's, there's a couple one-slam guys, but the Hall is going to have to decide. Like, once you, once you get the really big names in, who else do you elect or do you go back further in history or do you just go with women only for a few years or do you bring in more doubles guys? But, I mean, they're, they're, it's going to come to a head, I think, and... If, if they do have to have to break with the tradition of pretty much needing someone to have a slam to get in, then I think Ferrer's a, a top candidate to be that guy. Um, but there were five tournaments last week, and we've only talked about one so far. Um, I also wanted to talk about the, the the biggest men's tournament of the week, at least in terms of ATP points, was in Hamburg. The winner there was Nicolas Basilashvili, the Georgian giant, and he beat Andrei Rublev in three sets in the final. And to me, the bigger story here is Rublev. I mean, Vasilashvili is impressive. You wouldn't think of him as being particularly dangerous on this particular court, but he, he won in Hamburg last year, defended it uh, last week. Uh, but Rublev, I think, is the bigger story. He's been up and down a lot. He, he was injured. He's been pretty slow to come back. So he's got this career high of 31. I think he's back in the, is he back in the top 40 with the final? Maybe not quite. Maybe he needed the, the title to get in the top 40. But he's, he's on his way back up. He's still... 21 years old. So he's basically the same age as Taylor Fritz, who we're talking about as a, a player on the rise. I mean, in terms of how we perceive Andre Rublev, I think he's hurt a little bit because he was so good so early. Uh, so 
it looks like he he's back up to number eight in the twenty one and under rankings, pretty far behind Fritz on the ranking table. But again, similar in age and not too far off in in terms of ranking. What do you, what do you think for uh, for the future of a guy like this? I mean, do you think Rublev is still on pace to become like a top ten level talent? Well, an early injury that sets someone back is always concerning because of what it might say about later injury. And if we ever get the data to study that, I'd love to see if what I just said is true. But you're right. Rublev is is ninth right now in the live rankings in the under 22s. And he's not far from some players who I think are, are seen as having pretty bright careers. And anyone who's like seen him at his best is is not going to uh, doubt that he could be in the top 10 and maybe do much more than that. So, yeah, I think I think he's still got a good chance. I don't know if it's quite 50 just because there is there is like a pretty solid group of players his age and some players 16 years older who won't go away. Yeah. Uh, if you had to pick a career between Rublev and Fritz, which one would you take? Ooh, uh, higher um, like tenth percentile for Rublev, but higher fiftieth percentile for Fritz. Do you think that Rublev's fiftieth percentile would be closer to Fritz if he played the same American heavy schedule? <laughs> uh, as in, is Fritz just vulturing points by playing against weak fields? Well, he's. I, I don't want to say that, but we're comparing these. The comparison is obviously not based just on last week, but Fritz was the runner-up in in a U.S. 250, and Rublev was the runner-up in a, a European 500. Uh, I mean, it all depends on who you play in any given week, of course. But I mean, you got to give the Rublev the nod in terms of working harder this week. Uh, Fritz has managed to pile up some points in, in easier tournaments, and he, he has more opportunities to do that because he's normally normally playing the 250s in the U.S. But, but yeah, I mean, do, do you think it makes a difference? Maybe a little. I mean, ELO should normalize all scheduling imbalances, and Fritz is 30th, Rublev 51st. I'm sure there's a penalty for Rublev from missing time, but uh, it still looks like Fritz right now is stronger, so it just seems like an easy guess that he's going to have the stronger career if not by a big margin yeah and for the record i don't think rublev is affected by a penalty at this point he's been back long enough that that should have been canceled out and also the penalty only applies to people who get injured with a ranking or a rating rather above a certain level and i'm not sure his was above that so in I, I wouldn't take that into consideration. So yeah, I mean, he, and may, maybe I'm giving him too much credit for doing this at a 500. I mean, he didn't have a have a particularly brutal draw to get to the final here. I mean, certainly not as difficult as Vasilashvili did because the other player I wanted to talk about from Hamburg was Alexander Zverev, who was looking pretty good in this tournament until he hit Vasilashvili in the semis. They played a, a, a really tight match, ended in a third set tiebreak. Um, it went Vasilashvili's way. And this feels like the sort of tournament that Zverev should have won, we can say. I mean, the Zverev of, I don't know, 18 months ago, who was unambiguously on the rise, seems like he wins this tournament. Uh, now it seems like the Zverev of 2019 does not win these matches or these tournaments. And he he parted ways with Ivan Lendl, or rather, Ivan Lendl parted ways with him. Um it's saying that he's got too much else going on to focus on the tennis or to, to fully take advantage of their partnership. Um, what's your take on Zverev these days, Carl? I mean, is, 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 I, I think he's at number 11 in the ELO ratings. I, I haven't looked at his official ranking for a little while, but got to imagine that's going to take a hit soon. Uh, I mean, is, is he still sort of the heir apparent to the throne or has he fallen back into a, a bigger crowd of guys who are not as differentiated as much? I think he's fallen back a little in that you could group him with Tsitsipas. I don't know who else necessarily you would put him with. Maybe you Medvedev. could say, let's go younger. Uh, I, I don't think Medvedev or Kachanov are, are in, in the group yet. Uh, do you? I think if you're looking ahead, I, w- I would put Medvedev in that group. I mean, Medvedev doesn't have the resume. Uh, I mean, nobody does because Zverev has the Masters titles. But yeah, I think, I think Medvedev is as good right now. Yeah, maybe I'm putting too much stock in Medvedev being uh, 
a year older. So a year, you know, like I, I think I still think Zverev of a year from now will be better than he is now. Maybe not. He won't be quite back to his peak. And then I, I think the other kind of uh, go, if you go with someone much younger and not quite there yet, but showing the most potential than Oger Aliassime, then, you know, that would he would he would be in that group, too, in terms of, you know, I, I could see him being better than Zverev is right now once he gets to 22, maybe a lot better. So, yeah, maybe he's fallen back, but I think it's still a pretty elite group and that once a player has shown he or she can reach a certain level, then that makes it more likely that they that they get to that level. Uh, Again, something that I'd like to check, but I feel like that's something you've studied and found. I think it's something that I've talked and speculated a lot about. <laughs> I know I've, I've looked at, at veterans and whether their, their past peaks are predictive of, of what they could do in any given week and found that it's generally not. I mean, I think that we, we, tend, to, we tend to think it is, that if, uh, I'm not, I can't think of a great example right now, but um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, when I first thought about it, it was back in the day when Roddick and Hewitt were, were fading, but they were still playing regular schedules. And it felt like in any given week, Roddick or Hewitt could win a title. I mean, we, we've seen them be great. They still have most of the same skills, but then they would settle in in the 20s or 30s in the rankings. Uh, and it seems like they should have had more variability in their results than just your typical 25th ranked guy, like maybe a Philip Kohlschreiber type. But I don't think I found that they did. But it seems like a very different sort of uh, question when you're talking about guys like that who are maybe 29, 32-year-old or older greats compared to someone who so far peaked at, I don't know, 19 or 20 and is playing below that level at 21. I mean, your logic makes sense to me that if you're, if you're comparing two 21-year-olds, then if they're at the same level now and one of them had a higher peak a year ago, you take the guy who played better a year ago. Because I mean, it's, unless there's some concrete reason, like an injury, why he can't do it, seems like he's more likely to get back to that point than just crossing your fingers and hoping the other guy somehow develops to that point. But... Yeah, the, the, we don't have any research to back that up. I think a good example now would be like Sanga or Venus Williams. Yeah, those are great. Sanga especially because I, I mean I've uh, I've been convinced of this for probably a decade now. Like I, whenever I see Sanga in a draw, I always think like, oh yeah, he's a huge threat here. This could be his week. And you'd think after about 150 tournaments and a few 250 titles along the way, like I would have learned my lesson, but still, like I, I see Sanga in the Washington draw this week and I'm like, yeah, not that strong of a draw. Sanga could just blast through that. I'd love to see him win this one. Like that's just not, not how it works. He did in Canada in 2015 and that was probably enough to sustain your belief for a while. Is that 2015 yeah. or 2014? Yeah. Whatever year it was, it was some amazing stuff. That's probably true. That that sustained it for another year or two on its own. So speaking of, of well, let, let's skip past the other tournaments from this week. Really, well, not skip them, but breeze through them really quickly. In Gestad, um, we had a pretty amazing comeback from Cedric Marcel Steba, who's, uh, I feel like this is segueing from something. I'm not sure what it is. He's in his late 20s, been injured a lot, had a hard time sustaining a top 100 level, but... Obviously, he's got some skills. He he made it to the final, ended up losing to Alba Ramos, but uh, but beat some solid opponents. Kind of a weird stat from there. Steba is a lefty, and over the course of five matches in Gestad, he played three other lefties, including Ramos in the final. And his two matches before Gestad um, in Umag and also in a challenger before that were also against lefties. So he's really gotten accustomed to playing other lefties, I guess. And there's another research question. I mean, is, is there an advantage to playing back-to-back lefties for lefties or for righties like is there a is there a benefit to having seen one and players seem to think there is because they want to practice with lefties before playing Nadal or other lefties presumably um but I mean I'll ask you Carl since we, since since we're on the topic I, I I would like to look into it but do you have a gut feeling there is there an advantage to playing lefties back-to-back putting in a better position to you know be used to it in the second match Uh, yes, marginally, yeah. <laughs> Although I, there might be some bizarre, like if you yourself are a lefty, there might be some weird confounder where the fact that you're playing so many lefties is a signal that you're playing a tournament that's really favorable 
to lefties. So you're doing well because of that. Although I guess that would cancel out while you play lefties. I just want to say lefty a lot. Um, yeah, I yeah, realize I, mean, I packed like five of those into one sentence a minute ago. Yeah, I mean, it's it, like to actually be playing against lefties close together in time, not just in match matches, you would need to be playing them at the same event. So you're probably playing pretty well to get to those matches. I don't know. That, that That's sometimes what I find difficult about understanding what it means to do something in consecutive matches. Yeah, I mean, that, that's... Uh... And maybe there's a, a there's an opposite effect going on as well because people always like to focus on the stats about how players do after upsetting a top player. Like the, there was a stat going around for a while that after beating Nadal, players were you know one in twenty four or something. It wasn't really that, but um, but there's some extreme results players have after upsetting top guys, and I think fans like to attribute that to being mentally exhausted from beating the top guys. But at the same time, those players weren't expected to win or advance in the first place. So maybe they weren't expected to be that bad in the next round, but we should have projected them to be at least kind of bad in the next round. So maybe that's, it's definitely a factor we have to take into consideration. Uh, One thing you mentioned in passing, I'm curious if there's anything to this. Do you think there are tournaments or conditions that are favorable to lefties? It's hard to imagine what the what that would be. I mean, there, I guess there was some sense that clay was great for Rafa specific. Clay is great for Rafa specifically, but and, and to some extent because he's a lefty. But I don't think that necessarily translates to other lefties, some of whom play with a lot flatter forehands and you know maybe are just have a totally different game style. So the diversity of styles among lefties is as great as the diversity among styles of righties, or at least among a subset of righties that are equal in number to the number of lefties. So it it doesn't really make sense to me that they would do better in certain circumstances. Um, I have this very recent sense that they're really good on clay because of this past week, but I don't think that's real. Yeah, it it does seem a bit far-fetched. I'm kind of forming a story in my head that would add up because I've always thought at least in the last in the last generation or two it it does seem like lefties are disproportionately good on clay I and mean, you just think about the the journeyman lefties on tour you've got del bonus you've got albert ramos um i mean gil Mueller is kind of a counter example but he was he was competent on clay um it just it seems like you see more lefties at, at clay feliciano lopez misha zverev sure. Zverev's your counterexample, isn't he? I mean, and so is or, Feliciano Lopez. I don't think he's yeah, much on clay. That's true, uh, and yeah, they've got a very different game style that might make them more unique than being left-handed does. But if there is a story, it's that like, if if you are, uh, yeah, it's, it's tricky. What I was going to say is, if you are a lefty, the advantage of being different might come more in in rally tactics than on the serve. So maybe the advantage is bigger on surfaces that like let you take advantage of those rally tactics. But at the same time, like a, a big lefty serve or an unusual lefty kick, like those things can be as deadly as, as anything in a rally. So, so maybe, maybe the argument can go either way. I don't know. Uh, I, I, maybe over, over the history of the sport, then there's not the same tilt towards left-handedness on clay. It would be an inter- interesting thing to look at. I don't think I've ever even tried to crunch the basic numbers of, of whether lefties are winning more on clay, but maybe that's something we should take a look at. I guess Kvitova is another, not that she's bad on clay, but is best on other surfaces. She'd be another counterexample. Yeah, it's it seems like there's, there's not, if there's anything like that going on on the women's side, it's not as strong. Um, it seems like the, the lefties are more evenly split. I mean, Kerber as well, another top lefty who you don't think of as, as a really dangerous clay court player. Um, let's talk some about doubles. We've got, uh, at, in this Washington, D.C. tournament, we've got a lot of big-name players playing, um, starting with Andy Murray, who's partnering with his brother Jamie. Jack Sock is back. I think he made the semifinals in doubles in Atlanta with his buddy Jackson Withrow. Um, the the Bryans are there, of course. Um, Sock is back here playing with Leander Pays, which would be a fun fun team to watch. Uh, Kyrgios is playing doubles with Stefano Sitsipas, and they're opening their their draw against Cabal and Farah. 
And then Dimonor, who we were discussing earlier, coming off his win in Atlanta, he's playing with a double specialist, his countryman, John Piers. Um, what do you think, Carl? Is this? Let's start with the with the Murray brothers. Um, do you think that Do you think that Jamie's a, a good partner for him? Maybe even better than than Feliciano Lopez. Ooh, <laughs> well, it's hard to beat winning Queens in your first match back, first tournament back, as Andy did. But Jamie and Andy have played together a lot, and they they've had okay results i I saw them playing uh davis cup together against france in the quarterfinal in i guess that was probably 2015 and gb went on to win davis cup that year so they've been a very good team playing for country but i think on tour it's it's kind of weird just because jamie is so fixed usually with a partner now he's got a new partner but the plan is is to play with him, as far as I understand. So th- these feel more like one-offs and maybe like, you know, a somewhat unwelcome distraction for Jamie, who's very serious about being one of the best doubles players in the sport, whereas Andy presumably is using doubles as a way to get ready to play singles again. And at that point, he'll probably play zero or almost zero doubles. Um, but yeah, Back to Indian you know, Wells th- only. Yeah, and I saw him play with... Jamie once at Indian Wells, and I think they were playing Bopana Qureshi in a super tiebreak after splitting the first two sets and went up 8-2 and lost the next eight points, something like that. So maybe it's just never been the same between the brothers since then. <laughs> I I do think there's something going on here in D.C. generally where the organizers sense the value of doubles, uh, reports that they actually suggested some of the pairs to the players which I don't think is standard practice and have also toyed with the idea of mixed doubles in future events, given that this is a combined WTA ATP event. That would be interesting. And I did notice that there's a doubles match on center court on, on today's schedule. So the, the first day of the week, granted there's not as much firepower to put on the schedule because all the seeds have a first round draw. I think it's a 48 draw. Um, but is it is it Kyrgios Tsitsipas that's on the schedule today? I forget which one it is, but uh, I think it's Kyrgios Tsitsipas against Kovalfara, which, I mean, justifies center court in my book. But um, that's interesting. I, I hadn't read those reports, but I wonder how many tournaments do that. It seems like Indian Wells probably does, and they, they encourage and maybe even uh, pad appearance fees to get players to play doubles. But um, I'm curious about curious about Kyrgios. Uh he has played some doubles. I don't think he's had any great results. But one of my sort of pet theories about about doubles in general is that some players who some players are weak in sing- singles because of the mental aspect that maybe it's hard to stay focused or they get down on themselves or these commentator things that that we all infer about players watching them struggle on court that sometimes those struggles are erased when you have another guy on court with you. You you can feel like you're playing for them or for Kyrgios. Maybe it makes it more casual that he can sit down and have a chat with his pal um, on all the changeovers or just the sort of mental check-in when you're deciding what direction to go in every serve. Like you're just sort of being reminded to, to be present and focus on the tennis. Uh, do you think that that could work for someone like Kyrgios? He could turn into more of a doubles threat than or a more consistent doubles threat than he's been consistent on the singles court? Yeah, I think it's possible. I think there's some technical things holding him back doubles-wise, but lots of evidence that on the mental side, it would all be positives. I do think... It couldn't be much negative, right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I, I think the only potential negative is that he already often plays single some singles matches, like the outcome doesn't matter, and that is one of the things that that makes some people so negative towards him. And I think you don't need to have that attitude to think that about any given doubles match. So I think he, he doesn't want to let his partner down, but he also doesn't think his partner cares that much. He's not playing with like a double specialist usually. And from, from my limited watching of him playing doubles and, and hearing of him talk about doubles, that's my sense is that he's so relaxed that he's like even more relaxed. He's even more casual about the outcome than he can be at times in singles. So you don't see Kyrgios as the second coming of Jack Sock. Well, Jack Sock 
talks a similar game, maybe because he's buddies with Kyrgios, and that's how you're cool with Kyrgios, is showing you don't care much about tennis. But well, it's a good way to be cool in general, <laughs> just pretend like you don't care about stuff. Yes, especially the outcome of a competitive pursuit. But yeah, that I think soccer. Is... Sorry, Continue, <laughs> yeah. I'll stop interrupting. <laughs> um, I th- I think that Sock actually does care about winning doubles matches, and that there's no way he would have had as much success if, if he didn't. So, um, yeah, it's it's in it's 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 definitely a contrast there. And do you think it's it, it, you mentioned the game style a little bit with with Curious, but we didn't really dive into that. I mean, the, the big Sock weapon in doubles is the forehand, which is just I mean, it's a big weapon in singles too, but it. it, it he can he can rely on that more in doubles and not have his backhand exposed as it is in singles. I mean, Kyrgios doesn't have the same like, explosive type of topspin. I mean, very few people do have the, the explosive topspin that Jack Sock does. I mean, is it that for Kyrgios, it's just, you know, he can probably win some doubles matches because he's a big server, but he doesn't really have much else that's going to make a difference in the doubles court? Yeah, and I think his, I, I mean, you're right about Sock's forehand, but I think Sock has a very good net game too. And I think Kyrgios' net game is not as good and is sort of a classic example of him uh, acting casual so he doesn't have consequences for for not having great results. And like Sock will put away the ball at net that he should and Kyrgios might go for something a little silly. Uh, you know, they have played together quite a bit as teams and I, I think those are some of Kyrgios' better um, results like the last time they played together was Lyon last year and they won the title okay so maybe, maybe that's the team that the DC organizers should have uh, should have directed their players toward would have left us with Sitsipas pays that would be pretty cool I would watch that um, so we are running out of time in our our self allotted 60 minutes uh, and we have as usual about three hours left of topics to discuss so Carl, I want to I want to let you make the final call. If we're going to talk about something for our remaining three minutes, uh, what do you want to talk about? Can we talk about forecasting tennis matches? Yeah, let's talk about forecasting tennis matches. I mean, one thing that a lot of listeners—that's um, you—a lot of listeners have responded to in our recent podcast is some of our sort of informal forecasting competitions. We both of us tried to pick the the final sixteens at Wimbledon and. We discussed the results the week after that, and it it got us both thinking about um, how to improve forecasting, that it's fun to forecast and, and compete and all that stuff. And we've been sort of developing an idea of, of how to turn it into maybe like a, a new kind of bracket challenge game or or a new, a new kind of fantasy tennis game. And I mean, it, it it's a struggle, I think, because doing daily forecasting is, it's, a lot of work. I mean, what we're doing just as a test with a, with a few people right now is is making forecasts of each day's matches and a few other stats related to matches every day. And and this morning I sent out a list of twenty questions on Washington and San Jose matches um, to this this small group. And Carl, you already you already answered yours. And is, how arduous is it to to feel like you're making smart forecasts to twenty questions like that? It's not arduous to feel like I'm making forecasts that match my level of certainty about the outcome. To, and, and what that means is that for many of the matches, I had very little opinion about who's going to win. So I put a pro- percentage close to 50. Um, if I wanted to feel smart, like, oh, I definitely know who's going to win, then it would have taken it would have been more arduous. And what I would have learned might have told me, no, it is kind of 50 50. So I decided to do it very quickly and casually. Um, and because like with the Nick Kyrgios doubles match, very little is at stake. Um, I, I think that was the right call. Yeah, I think it might be too, especially looking at the, the day one order of play in Washington and to some extent in San Jose as well. Like it, it's a lot of maybe not coin flip matches, but, but ones that don't have heavy favorites. And like I said, the seeds are all, all not playing. And if this, is, if this is something that people would want to do daily, making these forecasts and, and competing with friends or competing with the world to see who the best forecaster is, like the, the parallel is something like, like daily fantasy sports, which I've never actually played. I just know people are really into and, and get obsessed with. 
do you think that th- this compares? Like, is it is it equally fun or engaging to to forecast matches? Or it doesn't have to be tennis, but forecast the results of of games or the results of certain players compared to say you know, setting a lineup for for this week's football games or something like that. Is it could it be the same sort of activity? Do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think that with any of these things, you like decide where you want to put your your biggest risk and your biggest investment. And if if you don't know much or think much about a, a given decision, then just move on to the other ones. And I think it, it's been it's you set it up really well to to be able to do that and to be able to to move on like that. Yeah, I hope so. Um, yeah, so. So maybe I didn't quite spell out what we're doing enough, but I mean, hopefully this is something we'll be able to release to the public eventually. And if listeners are interested, you can participate. Um, just trying to build something that's... like I feel like fantasy tennis, or the equivalent of tennis for fantasy sports, it's been limited to bracket challenges so much. And bracket challenges can be fun, survivor pools can be fun, but so often like, you start the tournament, you see the draw, you fill out your draw, and then you cross your fingers. If you have a bad first day, then you're done. And like, that doesn't seem to be that engaging. It's never really appealed to me that much. And I was involved with an effort to create a kind of fantasy tennis game called Racket Rally a few years ago that some people really enjoyed. It was an absolute bear to keep maintained and, and, and working. And maybe there's some middle ground here, but uh, it seems like there's room to develop something that's that is a little more complex, maybe. I mean, I don't mean complex in participating doesn't have to be complex, but just asking more, more difficult, meaningful questions than, um, than just making a pick for every match. Because forecasting is a lot harder than just picking one player and crossing your fingers. Um, choosing the the confidence in that forecast is an entirely different animal. So we'll keep you posted on that. Uh, hopefully, we'll have a lot more to discuss. We've got some really smart people taking part and, and helping me out with this test this week. So we'll report back more on that a week from now. So, Carl, as always, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Jeff. Enjoy the tennis this week in Washington and San Jose, those of you who are lucky enough to be within driving distance of those stadiums. Um so yeah, this has been episode 72 of the Tennis Abstract Podcast. I am Jeff Sackman, uh, and yeah, tune in a week from now for our next installment.